What up, people? It's all about the money today. Welcome to episode seven of The Word. As I just drop all that cash on the floor. Welcome, welcome, welcome. The Word is your sales show that actually delivers without being boring. We have fun, but we drop real live information on selling, marketing, making your numbers, sales leadership. We bring it all. And to prove that point, today's show is all about making your number in the new information age. And our guest is Aaron the Boss Ross. We're super excited to have him. We'll be talking to him here shortly. But to kick it off, I want to introduce my co-host and badass Kiki B. What's going on, girl? Hey, everyone. This is going to be a really great show. Aaron Ross is a badass. Uh, we all have a lot to learn, whether you're a sales leader or a sales badass yourself. And as always, the Twitter hashtag is hashtag sales jolt, and we want to get this baby trending. So let's go. Oh, let, let's do this. Let's just get this one trending. This is a real good one. I'm excited about it. We're going to have some fun. Uh, as part of the word, because we don't like being boring and because it's all about badass information that you can use, but it's fun, because talking heads are easy, right? Everybody can be a talking head. We're not about being a talking head. We always kick off the show with some type of video, some type of photo, with something funny, creative, interesting that we then break down and talk about. So, Kiki, what do we got this week? This week we have a hilarious video about metrics and uh, just just sales managers and and what it really points out that we need to align things across the across the organization. So, one, two, ready, go. Hey Walter, I heard you wanted to see me. Yes. Brad, we need to talk over your phone call metrics. Sure, what is the issue? Well, it appears that your total daily call is at an all-time low. Yes, I'm trying something crazy instead of reading off the bullshit scripts I come up with a personalized reason to be calling each person and developing a meaningful reason for them to be interested. That may sound good. But my research shows that if you do not make 50 calls a day, you will not make your quota. But I am the top revenue producer. That is a numerical fluke because your number of dial is not high enough to sustain the revenue. So you want me to fake it like the other sales robots? Well, Brad, you seem to be fighting the system last week. You did not participate in the prospecting blitz, nor did you show interest in the sprint for the donuts. Yeah, I was wasting my time closing deals. That is no excuse for missing the management milestones. You should do what Lenny does. He is our top performer on the Matrix chart. Lenny is a total fake. He calls the movie theater ten times a day to keep his number of dials up. He does not hang up after leaving voicemails so that his call times are longer. He tells you what you want to hear and you fall for it every time. He is my model sales rep and understands how to be successful here at MT Suit Incorporated. So you should get on board and focus more on your metrics. Screw you. I mean, thank you. <laughs> oh, Kiki, every time I watch that, it makes me chuckle. <laughs> it absolutely makes me chuckle. Look, I get it. Metrics are important. Not only are metrics important, data is important. And we're going to be talking about data today. So I'm all about measuring things. But you've got to measure the right things, right, Kiki? I mean, you've got to measure the right things. Absolutely. So when you think about the, when you think about the right things, right, you've got to be measuring the results first. What are you trying to get done? And how do they correlate or is it causality? And too often, sales organizations and sales leaders, you spend so much time managing the activity that you lose sight of the big picture. You lose sight of what's important, and you tell salespeople how to do it. So yeah, there's two things wrong with with other than it being a funny video, there are two things wrong inherently with with what was going on in that video, what I think the creators are trying to get across to you. The first one is, as I said earlier, measure the right things and they have to be aligned with your business. What are you trying to get done? Are following the activities, do they automatically get you to the result? Are they the cause of your result or do they only correlate? Well, they only correlate, you shouldn't measure them. You can manage them, you can watch them, you can focus on them, but you can't measure them because that leads you down a rat hole. The second one about that, though, is not everybody does the same thing. When you pick, using this, when you pick cold calling, for instance, and you force people to make a certain amount of calls, 
What does that say about social media? What does that say about social engagement? What does that say about using email? What about the other tools that allow you to connect and engage with clients and customers? So you've got to let your salespeople develop their own methodology. Give them a path. Give them some tools. Give them some methodologies that may or may not work, like cold calling or how many they should make or what your research has shown. But then let them do it themselves and focus on the metrics that matter, the end results. Anything you want to throw to that, Kiki? Um, yeah, I think all too often it's about dials and talk time, and I've seen in real life people get let go from the company I was working at because they were calling dead numbers, they were fudging the stats, and it's, it's easy to look like you're doing something, uh, but the numbers won't follow. There you go. There is your telltale sign. SVPs, CROs, directors of sales, sales managers, there's your perfect sign. If you have people who are fudging activity numbers, what they're telling you is the activity doesn't work, but they're doing it because you're forcing them to. Because if it worked, if 50 calls was a guarantee for your quota, if 30 calls would guarantee your quota, they would make them. But it's not a guarantee. So what they're finding is they're making them. It's not getting their job done. It's not helping them reach the number. But they got to make the, the activity goal. So what do they do? They fake that shit so you'll get off their ass. So if you see that, cut it out. So I won't say the name of your old company, Kiki, but they got to cut it out. Maybe they should hire me or Aaron to come and fix that shit. That's right. All right. So next, what are we talking about next? Oh, we are going to talk about predictable revenue. We're going to get Aaron going here. But before we do that, I want to set the tone. I want to talk about why, in my opinion, and Aaron, take some notes, brother, because I want to watch your thoughts on this, why Aaron's book was so timely and why it's different today than it was before. And as I see it, it breaks down like this. We are on the precipice, or maybe even our first foot, into a new age, right? We're coming out of the industrial age and we're moving into the information age. And that has changed everything. Just like at the beginning of the industrial age, when there were salespeople, what did they do? They sold face-to-face. -face. They did events. They carted those little carts around with their wares in the back, or they went door, and then they moved to door-to-door -door and knocked on doors. And sales was face-to-face. -face. And as the telephone became ubiquitous and became common, and mail became common, and photocopies became common, someone said, hey, wait a minute. I don't have to go door-to-door. I can do this more, effective, more effectively and more efficiently if I pick up the phone and just call the person. I can get 20 people on the phone in an hour or two as opposed to three or one in an hour or two if I'm going door to door. So all of a sudden, born is tele, is tele uh, communication, those people we can't see who call us up all the time, is born as the inside, I mean the outside sales rep who makes the cold calls and sets up meetings and comes and visits you. Cold calling is born, all that is born. And now we send people mail. We send it through. We said, please send me something in the mail. My first sales job, I cold called and sent shit in the mail. I put a little folder together and I put a little label on that sucker and shipped that shit out. That's what we did because that was what the new technology provided us. From basically the middle of the 50s when door-to-door -door started going like this through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s with the cold calling and all that. But then it changed again. Information age. We had email. We had social media. We had webinars, we had WebEx, we had all of that stuff that said, wait, and someone said, wait, and that someone is Aaron, said, we could do this differently. We could be even more effective, we could be more efficient, and that's why this is so germane. So from a contextual perspective, as we start talking to Aaron, ask yourself, what has changed between then and now, and is your organization capitalizing on the new changes? Are you leveraging them to be more effective and allow your salespeople to sell more and do more with them? So that's my take on this why we're here and why Aaron's book is so pertinent and so germane and why it's so powerful is because it's aligned right with the change from one age to another age and few people get to experience age changes we're lucky my dad was in the industrial age his whole life we're lucky so we should jump on it jump on it Kiki what are your thoughts girl I think you're right we're at a precipice that it's, it's an opportunity um, a unique opportunity that you pointed out to uh, kind of be the, the pioneers of this new informational age and um, things like this, things like live hangout chats where you can actually look your your clients or your potential clients in their digital eyeballs, as Brian Fanzer says. Um, I think it brings another level of connection and you're, you're no longer limited by proximity. 
you can find your target market around the world now. So I think it's awesome. Holla, 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 straight up, straight up. You're absolutely true. So rather than us pontificate anymore about the changes in the world, let's bring in the guy who helped articulate how to capitalize on that, and let's blow this up. You want to introduce him? Yes, sir. We have Aaron, the boss, Ross. Um, I think it's a rarity that you're able to have an intimate hour with Aaron and be able to get your questions answered. Uh, so take advantage of it. Hashtag sales tool on Twitter. And uh, here is Aaron, the boss, Ross. Hey, hey, hey. What is up, boss man? How you doing? Let me, uh, oh, I think I'm unmuted now. So hey. <laughs> Morning. Um, actually, I think that's a new nickname. I don't know. If, I don't know if I've heard Aaron the Boss Ross before, but I'm not arguing with it. <laughs> I'll tell that to my wife and see if it'll stick. But somehow I think she'll probably just laugh at me. <laughs> that's it. We'll we'll make it stick for you here because it's tight. Yeah, I like okay. your words. Yeah, that's right. So, so what did you think about my intro? What did you think about that whole idea that going from age to age? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that over time the ages are shorter and so if it took the industrial revolution was a hundred years or, you know and then the internet was 20 years and then you know SAS is 10 and so I think we're getting to a point where there's we're just moving to a constant age change in its own way because as everything gets more connected I don't know stuff changes faster and things get noisier and so a lot of it isn't so much how good are you today, it's like how fast can you learn, how fast can you adapt and get better at what, whatever's going on. And also be able to sort through the noise of like what's real versus what's just, well, I guess noise and distraction. And I do think today one of the best skills for today in the future is going to be be able to distinguish, you know, when am I getting distracted, when am I doing something new and interesting versus when am I getting distracted. Interesting. So with that said, how what was the precipice for you? How did you say to yourself, okay, shit, I need to do something different in Salesforce? What was the beginnings of the book, and how did you know you needed to do it? Sure. But before, did you guys actually see this really neat T-shirt I got? <laughs> so I think just wanted to point that out. <laughs> Holla. Uh, yeah. So I think here I probably have to thank you for that. But the Salesforce, my Salesforce... In, in some ways, uh, I worked at Salesforce about 10 years ago, give or take, uh, 2002, 2006, and something, lots of things have changed, but some things haven't. So at Salesforce, one of the things that has not changed, the same back then, it's the same today, is Salesforce started with small, you know, an, uh, a, the first software subscription apps, and a lot of small companies were their early customers, especially in Silicon Valley where there was lots of startups and it was just easier. And generally, it is always easier to start with smaller companies, smaller deals. And so a lot of Salesforce.com's early business up to, I don't remember how big it was when I started. It might have been already 50 or $100 million. Let's say 50, because it was about 150 people when I started. So I like to say I started early, but not early enough. <laughs> and um, so most of the business was from small, you know, smaller companies, say under a few hundred employees, smaller deals. We hadn't done any... We might, I'm sure we've done a few hundred seats, but we hadn't done a thousand seat deal. And Salesforce was making an investment to target bigger companies and bigger deals. So that year in 2002 had come out with the first called enterprise product, you know, which uh, before that all they had was you know the, the original professional edition, which is, was was the $65 a month. And so they came out with an enterprise product, which was a better fit with. Um, I don't know, customization and blah, blah, blah for bigger companies. And they'd hired a lot of field salespeople, and, and, but we didn't have leads for them. Because, again, something which is true then and true now, there's been this idea, even my father, who's been in software since really they started, he'd say, people believe, hey, we'll hire these experienced enterprise salespeople. They'll bring in a bunch of relationships and customers from their Rolodex, which... Honestly, it doesn't happen. It's, it's, it does, but it's pretty rare. So Salesforce hired a bunch of these people. Uh, they didn't bring any deals in. Salesforce is getting a ton of inbound leads through word of mouth, but all for small business. And we needed to, we just, to me it was obvious we needed a way to go out and generate pipeline for this sort of medium and larger company target markets that we weren't getting. And the inbound and the PR and the word of mouth just wasn't penetrating. 
And so I saw the problem. I didn't know what the solution was, but I said, hey, can I take some time and figure it out? And uh, luckily, they get, I actually had like four months, three or four months to experiment and figure it out. I think I said in the book, you know, the predictable revenue, that I don't know if I said this, but I feel like, too, when, you're, when a companies are doing something new, they don't give themselves enough time to really try something and figure it out. It's like you give someone two weeks or, or 30 days, and that, you know, that would not have worked for us. If I'd only had 30 days, it would have failed. I did need three or four months to figure out the punchline, which was you know, a way to go out and prospect for deals at companies in a very predictable way that could generate almost as much pipeline as we needed for our field salespeople. So the first thing I'm hearing there is, okay, everybody noticed, whether you got lucky or by design, you started with the smaller companies first, which makes sense back easier. then too, because I want to say, my yes, it's easier, and I want to say my company back then in 2002 was on Salesforce, so we wanted your earlier uh, clients. We didn't have the concerns about putting our, our stuff in the cloud like the bigger companies. I could yeah. only imagine trying to go to... Uh, you know, Johnson and Johnson or two. Uh, yeah, no way. And like, hey, put all your shit in the cloud. All those Siebel users. They're like, fuck you. I'm not putting my shit in the cloud. Are you kidding? Yeah, so, I so, so it was either smart or you figured out. You're like, okay, I know where I'm not getting beat up, so I'll do it. So it's smart, but there was also a cultural element that gave you the time, which no one wants to give anybody anymore, to go figure it out. Is that is that right? Yep. Yep. So there was. I mean, it's like we saw the problem. And in fact, this is sort of related to the new book that'll be out next year. But it's like, saw the problem. You gave yourself it, everything takes longer than you expect, enough time to figure it out. And part of the, the success was really focusing on nailing a niche. Like, what's the sweet spot? Where in this case, it's true for anything, but in this case, where would outbound prospecting work the best? Because Salesforce had 20 or 50 different types of called verticals, you know, software, finance, manufacturing. Um, but there's really only two or three that worked really well for outbound, and then just turned into a system, which took you know again longer than we wanted, but it worked. And once it worked, we could crank it up as to you know we could just dial it up, we could multiply it. So if I steal your, if I if I take what you said, tell me if I'm getting this right. With the time you put in the front end is an investment that had a much greater return on the back end, but you've got to be willing to make the investment. Yeah, investment in time and energy and focus. Not, it's not always even just money, but some could be. I think it's. I heard time, investment in time, right? Investment in resources. What, what, I, what I'm, what I'm hearing is, look, you're not going to get a return right away. You got to take the time to make the people investment, the time investment, structure investment, and let that develop or, or build that right, and then you'll get the reward as opposed to make it happen right now. Give me the sale. Give me the sale. Give me yeah. the sale. And I'll give you an, uh, another example. Which, so the next book. Um, one of the one of the points we make is that if you're starting a company like a software company, whether subscription or whatever, um, you got to give yourself two years to figure out if it's really going to work or not. You're not 30 days, not 90 days, not one year. You need two years to figure out. Okay, is this okay? It's working, and is this going to be something that's going to take you know take off in some way and I don't know, be successful? And so my co-author Jason Lemkin. Said that he's just, he started a company called EchoSign. I love EchoSign. We use yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, he sold it to Adobe. Now that EchoSign is a division, is like a hundred and fifty million dollar company. Something, and uh, he also now Jason, of course, has the number one most popular SaaS community sort of blog called Saster. But when he started EchoSign back in two thousand, I think six, which is about when I met him, he said that in, after one year he had two, I think two co-founders that quit. Because after a year, it was still a struggle, and they felt like, okay, this isn't—it's not, I don't know, easy enough, or they, it wasn't taking off the way they wanted. And it took them about two years before Jason knew, okay, this is taking off, and it's sort of a question of now we just need to grow it, and it did take off. And he's seen that with other companies in terms of again, it's a lot of it is our expectations can be evil, and set us up for failure because if we expect something to happen, you know, it's not bad or good that it might take someone two years to get a company off the ground to know that it's going to work out the way they want. It's not, that's not slow, it's not fast, it just is what it is. The only problem is if we start to think, okay, well in six months, if it's not working, I'm going to quit. And you do that six months and then six months and you never put in you know, the time it takes to really get something off the ground. And you're always, that impatience cuts you off the knees from whatever the big opportunity could be that you've got. So that, 
Same thing at Salesforce. It took four months for that. Obviously, simpler to get a new just process off the ground than a whole company. But I see this time again, whether it's in parenting, because I got a lot of kids, or with work, or um, my wife's business. It's we we have these artificial expectations where we there's in my mind there's a you can have a goal, which is I want to have a, my company do a million dollars, or I want to have a company, or I want to make uh, you know hit quota, and that's one that's, that's useful. And the part where we go wrong is we have an expectation, which is it needs to happen by June, or else there's a problem. We start to judge it rather than saying, "Okay, I'm trying to hit my quota by June, and if I don't, if I don't, I failed." Rather than, "Well, okay, I didn't hit it, so where did, did I go wrong in this process? You know, did I not do something? What would I do next time?" And look at it as a learning opportunity rather than like a failure. So I love this. So let's talk more about your new book because I'm excited about it. Is that the is that the premise of the new book? Is is this idea of creating patience and letting things develop and and being open to pivot? Sort of what's the premise and, and walk us through why you felt you wanted to do another book? Yeah. Well, let me start with why I want to do another book was because um, I've got seven kids and we're adopting two more and I need to make a lot of money. Real quick, time out. Where are they adopted from? Uh, so four. Once because we're still two are still in the way. So four will be from China. One will be from East LA, and we tried to adopt two kids from Ethiopia, but it just didn't work out. So we're not. I'm adopted a 1968 by a white family, dude. So I'm a pioneer in this <laughs> shit. Like I, you have any questions? Especially if you get kids from Ethiopia, or if one of your kids is is mixed, I can help you all day long. I love it. Sure. Pioneer. Seth Levine, by the way, has uh, two children from Ethiopia. If you know Seth from uh, Foundry Group. Brad Feld's partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you guys have a lot in common. But anyways, love that. We should have a beer and talk more about it sometime. Yeah. I love it. Well, so I'm actually being, it's partly serious but partly jokey. But, you know, to me, I think at heart I'm an author. You know, if you look at my blog, I, I don't blog regularly. Um, so some people, like my partner Jason Lemkin, who you should follow if you're in software, but he's a, a prolific writer. He writes every week and so on. And some people are great about that. I am... That's not my strength. So I think I'm more of an author, which means I blog. You know, the things I do, it's all to create the next book. So to me, there's also a calling over the last couple of years around, um, I just felt there was a new book coming. It was time to do a new book. And I, I found a great co-author to do it with, Jason. He's like the main person I go to, maybe like one of the few people I follow. But the premise of the book, by the title, is not finalized. Um, there's a tentative title called the predictable revenue guide to triple your sales. But I think a lot of it really it builds on the first book, the predictable revenue, and expands on some of those original ideas, plus adds some new ones. But um, I think the, so one of the titles, there's, I'll give you two possible titles. We're, we're almost right now finalizing. One is from, from impossible to inevitable, which is the idea that if you have some big goal that feels like it's, you can't do it, but there's, there's a roadmap to starting a company and, and turning into a, a fast-growing company, whether you're trying to go from half a million to a million or from 50 million to 200 million. It's a lot of the same principles. That's one. And the other uh, title I like a lot is Truth Equals Money. So it's the okay, idea. So let's see. Let's see what our, let's see our followers think. <laughs> yeah. It's truth, it truth versus money? Truth equals money. Truth equals money is, is one. one. And then... From impossible to inevitable. Impossible to inevitable. I'm a fan of number one, uh, truth equals money. I simpler. love that. Cause my, yeah, what's one of my favorite phrases is confronting reality. I, 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 had yeah. to leave, uh, I had to leave corporate America because I am a very straightforward person. I say I'm a finder of the elephant in the room, and they finally got fed up with me finding the elephant in the room. They're like, Keenan, stop. I'm like, no, you said we got to do something. I'm telling you what's in the <laughs> way. You don't like it? Nice like, your, like your little uh, video. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So thank you. So what yes, you guys, I love that one. What is uh what at what site is that to produce those little those videos? Uh, all the little quick ones that I have for like yeah. a minute and a half. So I have a friend, you gotta love friends, who owns a production company. He is actually the production company behind Diners Dash and Dies with Guy Ferrieri or whatever his name is. Yeah. I went into his studio for a day, I put it on a uh, a teleprompter, I wrote like five thousand words, put in all those little clips, shot twenty six clips in a day. Edit them all out and dropped them once a week. Wow, great. Okay. So, 
anyway, the, so the, the basically, let's, let's go with, I, to me, I think that there's some big trends that are coming. So one is that honesty is important. Like today, we've got frictionless karma. And so it's all about, if, can you make your customers successful? And like you said, confronting reality. Like the more honest you are about, with yourself about what you are good at or not or what you want, plus honesty with your team and uh, especially honesty with customers, both in your marketing, in your selling, in everything you do. So I think there, that's, a, that's a common theme or it could be a core premise. For, it's going to be in the book regardless. But um, <clears throat> the, whole, the book is about how do you take what you're doing and grow faster? How do you triple your results, triple your business, or grow up by 10 times or double? So again, I think there's a lot of lessons from, there's a company called Zenefits which is going from 1 million in revenue to 100 million in revenue in two years, which oh, is man. You know, crazy. But yep. it's the same principles of what they're doing to what I've done. I grew my income by 10 times over the last four years. Uh, to if you're a million dollar startup and you're trying to get to two million or to ten million, a lot of the principles are the same, and I could list them out. I don't know if you remember five things, but you know basically there's these five sections of the book. The first of which is the one we talked about around patience, um, giving yourself enough time, and you know it's, it's like the entrepreneur's journey. That's just the first section. Okay. So. I find that, again, time and again, these companies where if you're giving yourself the right goals and the right time and letting yourself just go through the journey is the first step. The second step is nailing a niche. Okay, so real quick on that one. I like this one. I want to ask this question before because I think this is important. When you're an entrepreneur, I don't care how badass you are. I don't care how brave you are. We all know it's an emotional roller coaster, right? We're, we're yeah. always looking for something to tell us we're heading in the right direction, right? It's kind of like having we're a not failing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that without failing, it's kind of like owning a compass and some asshole with a magnet in his hand walks by you every six hours, right? If you don't know, shit, it just left. Was it the was it the magnet or is it really? Am I really going the wrong direction, right? So it's so here's the question: Are there things that you can do? Are there are there metrics? Are there things you can put in place to say, hey, you're heading in the right direction, you're doing the right thing. So it's not where you want to be, but look at this, right? Or is it just all over? You just gotta have faith. Well, it's, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, there are some things you can do. So, for example, and I'll, not so much in the book, but it's always so important to have uh, a circle of supporters who can, who can not only give you advice in terms of, hey, do this, do that, but also give you emotional support. That could be friends, family, coworkers. So that's incredibly important. Doing anything alone is just so hard. Oh, now, I will say it's frequently, if you're, if you're like a, an individual starting a, a business, whether it's software or coaching, you know, sales guy, a lot of times your friends and family will be the dream killers. So don't be afraid to love your parent but not listen to them about your business or their concerns. Or you can listen to them but not take in their concerns because they're afraid for you. Like you're not going to have an income, you're not going to do this. So you got to sort of be aware of who really your true supporters are and try not to take criticism in too personally. That's one. Now, I think in faith, of course, you always have to believe in yourself. Even though you, you won't always believe in yourself, some, you're gonna, you will doubt yourself, but that's different between giving up. So there's sort of this core of commitment. You've got to be persistent to get through the ups and downs, believing in yourself, having uh, confidence in yourself. I think, so, okay, so I think two things that make a difference, too. One is if you just, let's say you're going to start a business. Uh, one is mentally saying, I am going to start a business. Because I think a lot of people mentally are thinking, well, maybe I'll do one, someday I'll do one. And I feel like there, at least for me, there's a big internal shift between, hmm, yeah, I think I could start a business, or well, wouldn't that be nice, and I'm going to start a business. I don't know when, or I don't know what it'll be, but I am going to start a, a business. So that's one. It's like an internal decision. And I, what you'll find is that when you, if you're new to this, if you do that, you'll start to see ideas. So first you decide to start a business, and then the ideas will come. That's one. But in the book, more importantly, I think, is, for example, uh, you have to expect that for your journey, which I don't think you can define by sort of amount of money or this or that, but you should be expecting to work on your thing for 10 years. For whatever kind of def definition of success or before you're ready to move on, it's probably more like a 7- to 10-year journey hmm. to be... Uh, I mean, I've been working on this for probably about 10 years, give or take, in bits and pieces. Again, not full-time, but 
but the whole journey is, um, this is probably about 10 years so far, like nine years, eight years. I'm in that range. Um, now, I still, there's, you know, you can always, I have much bigger aspirations. Like now I've merged where we have a software, a software company. We're doing other things, but I think people, you have to expect like seven to 10 years. And I hope that helps in some ways in terms of if you've been at something for three years and you feel, still feel like it's not, it's struggling, that's pretty natural. And I, in the sense of it, I hope it helps with people relaxing, hey, I'm not doing something wrong. Other people, lots of people go through this and still struggling at three years or five years or even six years or seven years. Okay. I think what happens is we, uh, we see, we see the, the media of those companies blowing up and we just assume they did that shit overnight. Like Slack is a good example. Everybody's talking Slack. If you peel back the, the layer, they were just, I don't say wallowing, but they were just doing really nothing, just sitting in there doing their thing for a long time. Like five years. They had like five yes. years of crap. Yes, competing with Yammer and competing with uh, HipChat and all that other stuff and really going nowhere and then boom. So I, I see your point. I think, we, the, I think the message here that I'm taking is you got to focus on yourself. Don't look at the, the, what you see outside because you don't know the whole truth and just know that if you believe it, go with it. Yeah, it's a, you know, everyone compares and despairs. <laughs> and it just it will crush. It just makes, you know, makes everything harder unnecessarily because, look, the media loves uh, sort of the overnight successes. And overnight failures, by the way. Yeah, good point. Regular success isn't interesting to most people. Like they, we want the you know overnight success. But yeah, Slack. It was been five or six years of struggle before they had a breakthrough. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's it's very common. Yeah, okay. If you sometimes once in a while people have like an overnight success, like a true one, but that's so rare that you yeah. can't. It's like you can have that kind of a goal, but again, not expect it. And there's a big difference emotionally between those two things. That's good. I like that. I like that. So we got someone on Twitter asking a question. So uh, I think it's my boy Jack Kasikowski. Love that cat. You forgot. I've got a Thomas. Huh, that's my Thomas. Dude, I love those little pillow pets. I love those. I got those all yeah. over my house. Um, okay. What's your? Th the question is, uh, Aaron. What's your thoughts on the role that social should play when starting a company? Uh, well, so <laughs> when you're starting a company, most of your first customers will come from the people you know, friends and family and networks, which inc could include social. Uh, I'm not that big a social media person, but I guess I'm older. I, I hate to say it, but I'm, um, I find it more of a distraction. I like it, but so I think, again, first customers come from your network. Social is one way to get it. And the, you know, the challenge is you get your first 10 or 20 or 50 customers. There's some number of customers you get from your people you know and friends of friends. And then usually that dries up. So uh, Jeffrey Moore called it the chasm. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I guess it's called the chasm. But there's this, this difference between getting customers through your networks and then figuring out how to go out and get them when they're unknown, to, when they don't know you. Mm -hmm. So social could be, I think, most useful in the very early days, friends, friends of friends. But as soon as you have tapped that out, it's it's going to be more of a usually more of a distraction than a help. While you figure, and this is sort of section two of the book is how do you nail a niche? How do you figure out, you know, where is your sweet spot? Where is that strength, that unique genius, where people you know who your targets are, who needs you, right? That you're a need, not a want, or nice to have, and you know how to go out and talk to them in simple ways to get them interested. So once you again, I work with lots of companies or lots of people who've read the book, they frequently they get to a million to ten million in revenue. So these are software companies. And then they then they hit a wall. They plateau. Because they've tapped out all those networks, the people they know and their friends of friends, including social, and they then have to go out and figure out how to go out and reach out to people who've never known them. And that point social is uh, I say unless you sell social media stuff, probably a distraction. Interesting. All right. All right. So what would you say what, wait, give us the third chapter of your book. What's the third chapter, the third section? Okay, so first one is that uh, sort of evil expectations. Second one is about nailing a niche. The third one is about predictable pipeline. So actually the chapter title, uh, I'm actually doing these as painful truths. So the, the, the third chapter, the painful truth is if you build it, they will come, is a fairy tale. <laughs> Which means... Just because you build something really cool, incredible, doesn't mean anyone's going to come find it and buy it. 
except for your friends on Facebook. And then once they're done, they're done. So you need to find ways to go out and generate leads in a predictable way in order to drive your business. That's the third one. So it goes back, and a lot of that's about seeds, nets, and spears. If you've read the first book, um, I sort of I talked more about outbound in the first book. I touched on word of mouth, like seeds and nets, but the next book will go into more detail on all three. So how do you do outbound? How do you do inbound marketing? And how do you do word of mouth marketing? Which really, I, to me, is about creating a system for customer success. How do you systematically bring customers on and then make them successful so they would want to tell their friends? Or at least give you case studies and testimonials. Right, so that's so the third, there, third one is predictable so, lead generation. So I love this one. So I'm going to let us go over a little here. What's your method? Share a little bit. Of, dig a little deeper. Go a layer down. So how do you create a system or methodology that's repeatable around um, re referrals and references or creating that constant predictable lead? I love that. How do you do that? Okay. Well, uh, first, you know, there's a free ebook. I don't know if you can give people a link, but a predictable revenue. We did. Yeah, can, okay. can we do it? Is it on? Yeah. So there's the original book, Predictable Revenue, uh, which is on Amazon. And then there's a, uh, it's a free ebook. It's like a prelude to the next full book, but it's called The Predictable Revenue Guide to Tripling Your Sales. So I'll give you, there's a, it's just predictablerevenue.com slash triple. People can see it right now. Can they not, Kiki? And they can, link, they can click on it right now. So if they're watching, they can get it. Yeah. So I'll give you some tips, but that has a lot more detail on seeds, nets, and spears. So word of mouth or customer success, you know, and inbound marketing and outbound. But I think again, let's let's assume that most of the people here watching are earlier stage companies, could be consultants, individuals, uh, or even if you're in a company. <clears throat> so customer success, and this goes back to how important it is to be honest with yourself and honest with your customers, which means, you know, think about your company or you as an individual are all about how can you find the right customers sell them the right things, and help them get the most get value out of it. So in the past, I think, again, this is, a, this is an age change around, in the past, a lot of salespeople would find prospects and sell them stuff regardless of whether that customer needed it or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, if the customer failed, who cared because no one could find out about it because, you know, what are they going to do, do a letter campaign to their friends? It's a very slow yes. word of mouth. Today, you know, there's Twitter and email and Facebook. It's very easy for customer failures or customer successes to get out. And it's uh, and plus, with this, if you're in subscription, there's a lot of recurring revenue models now. And of course, if a customer is not happy, they're gonna le they can leave. It's not always that easy to leave, but they still can leave. So there's a lot of reasons why there's an incredible incentive to be honest at the beginning, middle, and end with customers, and also with yourself about who the right people are and so on. But so customer success, find the right customers, sell them the right thing, and help them get value out of it. And usually what happens is um, customers, uh, companies, I'm going to switch to a company like a Silicon Valley company, often wait too long in order to put dedicated people on that function. So let's say it's a, a software company might hire 10 salespeople and one customer support person or one customer success person. When in reality, customer success is an investment in revenue growth. Customer success is not about making customers happy. It's about driving revenue growth. Because if your customers are happy, they're going to stay with you, plus you'll get better case studies and testimonials. So again, usually we tell people, invest faster in creating a dedicated function of customer success where they can help figure out exactly the best way, you know, who the right customers are, how to set their expectations appropriately during the sales process, and then get them launched and get them getting value out of the product once they're signed up. So that customer service person, as you see, is huge. Huge, yeah. It's, it's, it's a much bigger and better investment than sales, or at least it's imbalanced. So, you know, there's lots of, this is why in that ebook, I, there's different ways people do customer success. And there's a lot more tips on if you have high-end customers or small. But you know, I think really putting a focus on, on making your customers successful, which can include them. So part of that is are you finding the right customers, setting expectations correctly. Also, if they're getting value out of what you do, do they even realize it? They may not know. Because yes. if, a, if an executive buys something and as people are using it, like, they may have no idea. You know, people just don't, sometimes they don't know. 
and it may come up in a year that's time to renew, and it's, and I'll say $20,000 a year, and they're like, what do we get out of it? And then like, we're not sure. They can still cancel. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, steps along the, what you can do with selling, marketing, selling, buying, and supporting to make sure that your customers are happy and they know it. Dude, love it. Lo completely on that one. They don't even know they're getting the value. I, I work no. with clients a lot of time, and I'm like, do they know they can do this? Are they aware this is happening? Or did they see this? Like, I don't know. I'm like, well, it's your job to make sure they get all the value. You can't wait for them to figure it out. So that's a oh, love yeah, that. exactly. love that point. Okay, so last question, but rather than make it a question, I'm going to flip the script. What do you, what do you, you decide, what is it you think a small to medium-sized SaaS startup, so anywhere from each 1 and 10 million in that space, should focus on, or is there something else, some wisdom you want to drop that I haven't gotten to ask that we don't know about? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to come back to, I mentioned nailing a niche, because I do think that in those early stages, um, especially once, and they see the, the, the problem is when they start to try to do some kind of outbound prospecting or outbound marketing and it doesn't work, you know, the reason is because you've, um, when you start out and you're using your networks, you get a lot of extra trust and attention for free. Because when you pitch your friend, you know, you pitch and you tell your friend Bob about your product, he'll sit there and talk to you for an hour about it because <laughs> he's your buddy and so on. And so you, when, you, when you grow organically that way, you're not forced to really crystallize and clarify who's your best customer, why do they need it, and so on. And so there's this, this painful process that everybody goes through where it's companies get started, they're marathon runners, and they just said, all right, now we're going to go bigger, we're going to do Ironman. And they wonder, okay, why do we struggle with biking and swimming? Well, because you've never done it. <laughs> Same thing with these companies, they wanted to million, and consultants as well. You can do everything well, but when you when you try to sort of tell everybody, here's all the things we can do, you just confuse them. So first, it's about by really focusing in on the, the one or two things that you do the best, because you need to make it simple for for prospects to understand who you are and how you can why they need you. And they can't do that if you're saying we can do these. You know, here's this whole menu of buffet we can offer you. So pick like one or two things. For me, I mean, years ago I was doing sales consulting. Yeah, I could help with, you know, the team and pipeline and prospecting and closing, blah, blah, blah. It's just too confusing. And I focused on my unique genius here, which is sort of outbound prospecting in the, in the consulting and software we do. You know, with software companies, it's like, well, we can, anyone can use this. You know, finance people in the U.S. And, you know, it's like, where have you had the easiest success made the biggest difference and made the most money. And focus just on that as a priority. And, and it's, it's hard for people to, to focus in on one or two key things they do because they feel like, well, we're missing out on all these other 10 things we could help people yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you're just going to confuse people. And you can, you can, when you have an hour, to, when you, Bob comes over and you can sit down for an hour and you, you can go through that laundry list of stuff you can do, sure, that's, you can, but you can't do that with, you know, sort of cold or outbound marketing or prospecting. They only give you a, a few seconds or a minute or two minutes. So you got to be make it short and sweet. So that's and that may not be. It maybe that's a week to figure it out. It may be several months or a year. But that's the place where I see those early stage companies, whether it's probably zero to ten million, struggle. And it's like if you can figure that out, then that is what you need to in order to make all your all any kind of lead generation effort much more effective and much more predictable and sustainable. Okay, so you just hit on something I lied because you bumped into something and I want to get your thoughts on that I think is critical, that I think is lost in all the discussion. When you talk about finding the niche, I wrote a blog post about two years ago that said product has now surpassed sales. And what I said was, as you kind of referenced earlier, back in the day, sales led revenue. I could sell somebody something they didn't need or if I had a deficient product, I could oversell that product because it wasn't a way for the buyer to know any better, right? Yeah. So I could get a, a deficient product into a customer, and I could the product team could fill it later and make the changes. And when people started complaining, like, yeah, we fixed it. Look, it's better now. Yep. That's flipped. The product now leads. And if you have a shitty product or the product isn't strong enough for a niche or the MVP is not high enough, your sales team cannot save you. So how do you how do you what would you say to organizations that have sales and product a mile away from each other and they're not really focused on, it's not just selling to a niche, but can my product deliver on the niche? How is my product reacting to the market? 
Yeah, no, it's a good question. So first, I do think there's a lot of confusion. I think you know people see Slack and they see Instagram or they see um, Dropbox and it's like, whoa, if you just got to get a product that sells itself. <laughs> like, no, first of all, that's bullshit. There are companies who hit like the lottery through hard work. It's not for free. I mean, they, but most companies, even if you have a great product, you still have to sell and market it because you know word of mouth can help, but it's not going to get you to where you want to go alone. Very rare. Even Dropbox and you know all these companies have big sales teams, or they will. You know Slack. Uh, you know I think there's some Twitter like, oh maybe it's the first company that doesn't need salespeople. I'm like, every company will always add salespeople because it's a great investment for lots of reasons. You know, anyway, they can be your most valuable employees for a lot of reasons. You know when you're selling the right stuff to the right people and helping them. So in my mind, it's not even about product versus sales. It's realizing that. Um, you know, going back to lead generation, seeds, nets, and spears. You know, so word of mouth, which is if you have a great product, you'll get more of it. That will be a good, uh, hopefully, a useful driver of your business, but not the only one. And you need to complement that with effective and clear marketing. However, that works for you, whether it's by content, by PPC, by events, you know, and complement that with, um, debt, you know, targeted outbound prospecting, which again could be for certain channel partners. It could be sort of broad-based, you know, just for companies. It could be for, um, you know, if you production partners. So it's understanding these different ways, different types of leads that drive growth, and the pros and cons of each, and how that, how what the right mix is for your business. So I think when people make these assumptions, like, ah, oh, we don't need sales because our product is going to sell itself. No, it's like you can you can rely on product, but you need to complement it with the right kinds of marketing or the right kinds of sales in order to, to get the kind of the growth that you want. And you speak, it's being smarter. Stop like, making these broad generalizations that like sales bad, product good, or product bad, sales good. It's like, no, that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, cupcakes aren't bad <laughs> and salad isn't good. It's like for some people you need more salad, some people probably need more cupcakes. Like who are you? Like what do you need for your business and for your in a birthday party, salad is bad. Cupcakes are <laughs> Right, so that's the I, best one yet. People, yeah, people make these these uh, these mental shortcuts, which I understand why they help and feel good, but they're not they they mislead you and distract you from what's really going to help you with your business. So that's I think this whole, the next book is trying to give people a roadmap, which is here are some simple ideas, which generally for almost everybody have been true and people struggle with, and how do you think about what the how do you you know. Put the time in, focus, generate leads, grow sales, and deal with people. And like give people a real sort of Silicon Valley recipe for growth. Okay, good stuff. I, I like that. I got. I want to remember that. Some someone's got to tweet that because I, I I can't do it fast enough. <laughs> at, a, at a party, a salad is bad. And where is a cu- and where is a cupcake bad? When you're dieting, cupcakes bad. You know, uh, well, you know. Well, anyway, it's like. At a party, salad's bad. bad. Party, salad's bad. Cupcakes are good. Yes, yes, but, you know, that's regular. I even cup, you know, there's a lot. That's okay. a whole complicated. That's a whole nother show around <laughs> emotional issues with people and emotional eating, where cupcakes <laughs> and salad are not as simple as you might think. Yeah, there you go. That was good. All right, <laughs> all right, my man. Thank you so much. We are moving to the next part of our show. You're you're here. We'll we'll talk about this in a second. But something we do here at the end of this is we call it cut it out, and it's where I address something that salespeople, sales leaders, people are doing as just Flat out wrong. So, Kiki, what is our cut it out today? Do you remember? I remember. What is it, sister? Uh, calling. I'm just calling to follow up. Ah, uh, yes. I'm just calling to follow up. Ring, ring. Hey, this is Jim. Hey, Jim. This is Aaron Ross. We spoke last week. I'm just calling to follow up. Follow up on what? Yeah, I had dinner. No, I just took a shit. No, I went to the park with my kids. What are you calling to follow up on? Really? People, we're busy. Okay? I'm busy. Aaron's busy. Kiki's busy. If you're trying to sell something, if we've even talked, and you know my world, or you know our world, don't call just to follow up. We don't have time for follow up. We don't have time to be wasted. You need to know exactly why you're making that call, and here's a million dollar piece. What value? V for value. What value is that call bringing? If you got to call me because I didn't meet my commitment to call you back, right? You sent me stuff and I haven't responded on it. Or I didn't do what I said I was going to do. Okay, I own that, but don't call to follow up. 
call up and say, hey, you said we were going to do this and it hasn't happened. Has something changed? Can I get you something new? Can you tell me what is going on so I can do something different? Bring me something. Hey, I noticed you didn't follow up on the research. Can I get it to you easier? Here's something new that might help you. Give me something. Don't waste my time with um, following up and I'm checking in. People, cut it out. It's old. It's tired. Enough. <laughs> well done, Kiki. Does that not drive you insane, Aaron? Well said. Yep. No, I think you're right on. It's, you know, uh, like you said, give me something useful. And I think what one of the things I heard, which I, I believe in, is helping uh, reduce guilt. Right? You said, hey, didn't get back to you. Can I make it easier on you in some way? Yes. Well, we're busy. Look, my girl, Jill Conrad, I'm not sure, not sure if you're familiar with Jill. Sure. She wrote a phenomenal book, Snap Selling. She was on the show a little while back. She, her letter to a salesperson is one of the best things I've ever read. It's a make-believe letter to a salesperson about how busy sales executives are. So if you haven't got the book, get the book. If you've got the book, once a month, go read that letter. It's in the first chapter, I think. And it'll remind you how busy we are and how foolish you look when you call to just follow up. <laughs> oh, my God. So with that, do we have any other questions, uh, Kiki, for folks for Aaron as we end this glorious session. This was the bomb. Um, no. The only other thing, Jack Kosakowski has a personal favor, Aaron. <laughs> he wants some feedback on a new ebook. Um, I'll send you the link. All right. Just him. Um, I can I can give some feedback. I just can't promise how quickly I'll give it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like read the book and then feedback. <laughs> but I do, I do, I appreciate. It. It's like I, if I was reaching out for help, I'd want someone to at least acknowledge it. So I try to do my best to do that for people who ask. Well, thank Would you. Interesting. Jack's a good cat too. So, Aaron, my man, I really, really enjoyed this. I will make sure that um, you have my contact info and I have yours. And the next time I am in San Fran, we've got to have a beer and talk about this adoption thing. Los, Los Angeles. No. Oh, even better! I love LA. Yeah. Even better. I like visiting. I don't like living. I couldn't live there. People are a little crazy, but that's a whole different story. That's right, we are. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, yeah, no. There's a lot of good people here, but there's lots of crazy people. I think that's true of most places and big cities. Maybe not the Heartland, but. Yeah, true. For sure, true. Uh, yes. For sure, San Francisco, and for sure, LA, and for sure, New York, without a doubt. True. I'm from Boston and live in Denver now, so I don't know. That's a I whole fewer, Yeah, I think fewer create the crazy ratios fewer in those cities. But okay. we have legalized dope, so give it five or six years, and that could. <laughs> you never know. My, I mean, I think there's lots of people in Silicon Valley, especially parents, who could use adoption. it to, to relax. And uh, right. I'd love to t love to talk to you about adoption in yeah. your kids. That would be awesome. So thank you, my man. I appreciate it. Uh, our next show, people is going to be another great one. It is going to be in two weeks, and it is Chris Brogan. So we are coming back to back with some fat-ass, chili, sweet boss guests. So thank you, Aaron. And next week, y'all, we will see Chris Brogan. Until then, bust it, make it real, and get to your number. Peace. I'm out. Thanks, guys. Just to the next episode.